Good afternoon. Today is Monday, the 19th of February, 2024, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Brian Gerrish, and I'm delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson from the Netherlands and Mark Anderson from the United States. We're going to start straight away with the truth about what's happening in Ukraine, because, of course, over the weekend, the heavily fortified city of Adivka fell. Uh, Western media still doesn't want to talk about this properly because this is uh, a major, major setback for the Ukrainian forces. And uh, it follows some particularly vicious fighting on the ground. Uh, but um, the city has gone. And in the disarray that's followed, Russian forces are continuing to move forward. Um, now, I've always been promoting um, online reports about the war in Ukraine because there are many channels putting out very good, accurate reports. Uh, today, I felt the best way to deal with the situation of Av Avdivka was to use a little bit of film footage from Weeb Union. So I'm going to say thank you very much to that channel. I have identified them on the film clip, but let's hear this channel reporting what has happened in Avdivka. Hello, uh, welcome back to another update as we cover the latest developments throughout the front line in the Russo-Ukrainian war. In this we have a coverage of the situation in Avdivka where the Russians have managed to gain full control over the city. The Russians managed to capture about 30 kilometers square, a little more than that, throughout the Avdivka front. With the capture of the city itself, the citadel area and the coal plant have all been under Russian control as of this moment. The Russians published some geolocated footage which shows them planting their flags around the coal plant area and in the citadel area about there, as you can see in this picture here. So with this geolocated footage, we can confirm that the Russians now have control over the whole city, 100% of it. And the fighting is now moving in a western direction towards Lestashkine. So also reports that they will start operations in the direction of Severna here to the southwest. And with this, we see that the Russians are going to move in a western direction to secure the outskirts of the city and likely create a buffer zone here to the west of Avdivka through the villages of Berdivki, Zeninivka, Orlivka, Toninke and Severna here to the west. So that was the report. It went on to give much more detail about the battle itself. Uh, but of course, a key feature of the battle was it uh, degenerated into utter chaos on the Ukrainian side. Uh, some Ukrainian uh, units surrendered, some Ukrainian units refused to fight. Uh, ultimately, um, small columns of uh, Ukrainians were retreating uh, to the west across fields with no cover particularly unpleasant uh, videos of them being shelled by the Russians or attacked by drones, which we're not going to show on UK column news, uh, but truly horrible for the Ukrainian forces. And of course, this was another fortified city that had been going since uh, 2014. And this is the uh, urban area from which much of the Ukrainian shelling into the Donetsk uh, area. Uh, this was the base for it. So this is uh, a massive plus for the Russians. And in the general chaos of that uh, of that conflict, of the Abdivka conflict, the Russians are continuing to move out to the west, as Weeb Union has described, to take other smaller um, villages, fortified villages. And uh, this is bringing them into the heart of the 
uh, Ukrainian defenses to the West. So a major step forward. But let's have a look at how this has been reported. This is the BBC. And uh, the, big, the big thing here is that uh, apparently the Ukrainian troops have left the embattled eastern town. So if we just bring up the little banner on screen, we'll see that the BBC takes retreat and surrender and simply tries to relabel it as leave. This is pure propaganda from the BBC. And if we also have a look at the Institute for the Study of War, um, we've shown on many occasions that the Institute for Study of War maps have been, have been badly out of date on the BBC website. So they haven't wanted to show the Russian progress. But in their latest report, the BBC shows this map. And of course, we notice the tiny scale so that we can't really see what's happening around Avdivka. But if you look, there is the hatched um, colour, which uh, they claim is limited Russian military control, and the yellow, which they say is claimed Russian control. But the reality, as you've just seen on your screen by an amateur, um, reporter is that, of course, the Russians are fully in control, and that's the truth. Alex, I'll just come over to you. I just find it astonishing that the BBC can be so blatant in its manipulation of not only the, uh, the, the media and reporting worldwide, but the reports on the war in Ukraine. How do they get away with it, Brian, is always the question. And I suppose the most sensible answer is they have been in this game for longest through both world wars and through the Cold War since, they have expressly had guidelines, both internal and nudged at them by the government, uh, on how to prevent embarrassment in wartime and during proxy wars to His Majesty's government. Yes. And uh, of course, it, it's, uh, it's going on in Syria, it's going on in other places. But we'd like to just draw your attention back to Admiral Radikin, who, of course, months ago was saying well, giving his opinion as to how the war was going. Let's, let's go back in time and see what this man was claiming. This is a dreadful mistake by Russia. Uh, Russia will never take control of Ukraine. Russia has strategically lost already. NATO is stronger. Finland and Sweden are looking to join. Um, if you look at the Ukrainian people, They've already defeated the original Russian plans, which were to take the cities inside 30 days and in about six weeks take most of the country. That's all stopped and Russia's had to change its objectives and it's focusing on the east. So if you come down a couple of levels, there's a tactical battle going on in the east of Ukraine and that's tough. The, the Russian machine is grinding away and it's gaining a couple or two, three, five kilometers every day. And, and that's tough for Ukraine, but this is going to be a long fight and we're supporting Ukraine. Ukraine has shown how courageous it really is. And Russia has vulnerabilities because it's running out of people. It's running out of high-tech missiles. And if you just look at where Russia is at the moment, it's, it's lost about 25% of its combat land effectiveness. So I'll throw this one at, at you again, Alex. This man did not know what he was talking about, does not know. He's talking about Russia running out of people 
and missiles and, tw and losing 25% of combat effectiveness. This man simply does not know what he's talking about. And of course, in the background, as we're going to be seeing, his Royal Navy is struggling to keep major ships at sea. What do you think is the matter with this man? He's had his head spun in some way or other. It's hard for me to put my finger on, but that the Wally-like intonation that the loose jaw just do not uh, produce any uh, resonance with the listener. They're, they're not congruent with his standing. And when you were uh, commanding one of Her Majesty's ships, you would not have taken kindly to a rapidly overpromoted land forces officer uh, assessing the uh, effectiveness of the Royal Navy or your slice of it. Here he is. Uh, adducing statistics about combat land effectiveness, which have been produced from where? The bowels of the Defence Intelligence Service, new style, stripped of many of its old specialists. Uh, I don't know, because these are uh, like GDP, uh, very um, subjective measures. It sounds good, of course, for a few seconds on TV. That's all it's good for. Uh, that's all it's good for, absolutely. And uh, we just uh, end with the true horrors of what's going on in Ukraine, because, of course, as a proxy military, uh, NATO simply wants to pour more people in. And you had found this report on the death of a mo mobilized person in Odessa uh, who was actually suffering from epilepsy when he was um, when he was mobilized, he's since died. And if we bring the banner on the screen, we can also see that, of course, the aim is to, uh, the Ukrainians believe that they could get another 500,000 troops and these will be largely untrained into the field. Uh, we'll leave that there. Let's, t let's have a look at vehicles, Alex. Now, as the meat grinder grinds on, admitted even by Admiral Radakin, the Western allies are doing all they can to produce uh, and send what they insist is the right specification of equipment to the Ukrainians. Built Zeitung, the leading German title, at least in terms of numbers of readers, has come up with uh, a number of uh, shocks recently. And this is the first of the, the latest of them. Equipment scandal shakes the German defense ministry. Uh, so what's on screen there is uh, an armored personnel carrier um, produced allegedly by the um, German firm FFG. Let's put that on screen. Um, they are based up in Flensburg in Schleswig-Holstein near the German border. And they seem, uh, between defence ministry incompetence and perhaps some sharp dealing by FFG, they seem to have uh, got the uh, wrong-headed idea into the procurer's minds that this was a German-made vehicle and a, a straight substitute for the fully German Rheinmetall Fuchs or Fox, the well-known German uh, armoured personnel carrier, which can withstand mine blasts. Now, it turns out that this is not um, produced uh, originally by FFG in uh, Flensburg or anywhere in Germany. It is, in fact, uh, produced by TAG Middle East. Some people will know them based in Dubai or Abu Dhabi, I believe. Uh, and it is uh, its uh, model name is actually the BAT-UMG, the B-A-T-T-U-M-G. Uh, it only has grade six uh, armor uh, protection. Uh, and this was apparently not well understood by either Ukrainians or the Germans when it was supplied. And this is the result. We can see a couple of shots here from a, a field of encounter near Bakhmut. This was not even a mine, which is, of course, the heaviest thing you need to uh, you try to de de defend against with an armoured personnel carrier. This amount of damage that we see here was done by a simple grenade thrown by the Russians. 
I don't know whether you have any thoughts on, on that, Brian, but uh, it is rather shocking that this amount of damage can be done to an armoured personnel carrier supplied to the Ukrainians, which they and Berlin understood wrongly at the time uh, was uh, you know, produced by the Germans to their own specification. Yeah, I, I really can't comment too much on it. It seems a lot of damage to me for a grenade, but it could have been, it could have been a, um, a relatively small caliber shell landing close. Difficult to tell. But be that as it may, it's not what you would expect and not what the German taxpayers would expect. And they seem to have paid over the odds for this alleged FFG armoured personnel carrier. Uh, moving on to the west coast of the United States, the um, United States um, uh, Secretary of the Navy uh, has been giving a talk at San Diego, Mr. Del Toro, and he seems to have taken the gloves off in a standing room only speech delivered uh, to uh, contractors to that great beast, which is the United States Navy. Navy. It's covered here by C4ISR Net, which uh, covers command control and intelligence issues in the US military, um, as uh, with this headline, Del Toro asks Navy contractors, and of course San Diego is pretty much the world headquarters of Navy business, to uh, consider taxpayers over shareholders. What did he say in the speech? You can't be asking the American taxpayer, he said, to make even greater public investments while you continue in some cases, speaking directly here to the naval contractors, to goose your stock prices through stock buybacks, deferring promised capital investments and other accounting maneuvers that to some seem to prioritize uh, stock seem to prioritize stock prices rather than making the needed fundamental investments in the industrial base in your own companies at a time when our nation needs us to be at all ahead flank. And he suggests in the, the rest of that speech quoted there that the American people are not getting what they paid for. Whether this will do any good, I don't know, but I don't understand or I don't see any indications that any of the Eurasian powers are having any such struggles with their own uh, military contractors. Uh, another uh, item of note, staying with US naval issues, is uh, in the eastern Mediterranean there, just off Crete, uh, as reported by Military Eye, uh, the USS Bataan and uh, the rest of her group uh, is an amphibious ready group. And we hear, read here a bit of a spin. The Pentagon has extended their deployment uh, because of uh, regional turmoil. That's, that's code, of course, for the Gaza war, which is spinning even further out of control. Uh, I read that, given the shortage of amphibious vessels that we've recently covered, as meaning there are no other amphibious uh, ready groups which the US Navy could send in to relieve them and there has been quite some rumbling uh, stateside recently about this that uh, naval officers are saying I don't have anyone to replace the uh, exhausted troops out at sea. Uh, moving to aerial matters, the aviationist has picked up that there is now a full trifecta of nose flops by all the F-35 variants. So the F-35A is the conventional takeoff, uh, the B is the short takeoff, the C is the uh, carrier deck. And this one too now, uh, while a pilot from the US Marine Corps was getting out of it, had this happen to it. And you see that it's landed on the fairing for the electro-optical sensors. I've seen different reports on whether they were cabbaged or not by this um, involuntary kneeling act by the plane but there you are, all varieties of the F-35 now produce that effect at times. Um, the Estonians have pointed something rather embarrassing out as well, as covered, carried by Defence One, that it takes Europe at least a year to fill a Ukrainian order for artillery shells, particularly the coveted and most useful 155mm shells. So uh, the, uh, Mr. Salm of the uh, um, Estonian Defence Ministry says that it's been difficult for the Europeans even to buy 
stock from outside the European Union, from countries like Pakistan, which still haven't produced them. And uh, he says that uh, there's another very large obstacle in the room, that's uh, Estonian English for elephant in the room, the willingness of third countries to sell. So a lot of countries that aren't in the EU actually would prefer to maintain good relations with Russia. And he says that after having given Ukrainians substandard or Soviet standard munitions for two years, uh, a lot of European countries' cupboards are going bare. The munitions are drying out, uh, as he put it. Um, we then move on to the Kiev Independent, which tweets out this rather astonishing news that the um, uh, Prime Minister of Denmark has said that Denmark is going to donate not some, nor a lot, but all of its artillery to Ukraine. That's right, Denmark is clearing out its artillery. So Meta Frederiksen, the Prime Minister, speaking at the 7th Ukraine lunch, which is organized on the margins of the Munich Security Conference under the auspices of the Viktor Pinchuk Charitable Foundation, which we've mentioned before, said this, quote, there is still ammunition in European stocks. This is not a question of only production, in other words, uh, just producing or buying uh, as per the previous slide in this segment, because we, that is NATO members in their own countries, have the weapons. We have ammunition. We have air defense that we don't have to use ourselves at the moment that we should deliver to Ukraine. I'm a bit perplexed, to be honest, Brian, by the idea that a European country, especially in the Baltic, doesn't have a need for its artillery and its ammunition. Uh, what, what on earth is perhaps going through her mind there? Well, that's, that's a very good question, Alex. Uh, I certainly don't know, but an easy response is how can you possibly work with NATO if you simply give all of your military equipment away? We are seeing utter breakdown, organized breakdown uh, within the European Union and, and certainly within NATO in respect of its military capability. And to my mind, this isn't accidental, this is deliberate. I would uh, concur with that. Meanwhile, we see that Associated Press uh, has found a rather striking decision in the Norwegian town of Drammen, which has a large number of refugees and uh, migrants of, of more general kinds. Uh, this appears to be unlawful, but perhaps of symbolic value that the council there at municipal level has decided that it will only settle U Ukrainian refugees and not any others. Uh, apparently, this is against international law and Norwegian law, but it shows something again of the mindset, particularly of Norwegian, or sorry, of Scandinavian countries more generally, compared with um, Fredriksen's remarks there. Uh, the Mail Online reports from North Northamptonshire that a council wrongly it insists it was a bona fide error, but wrote to a couple in their seventies. Uh, saying that their perfectly ordinary family home was uh, apparently derelict according to information they held and therefore they were going to use a compulsory purchase order, eminent domain to the Americans, to get them out. And the letter actually stated it's because we have a lot of Ukrainians and others to house. So you, viewers can make of that or not, whether, whether or not they think it was genuinely a mistake. I'll just close this segment with uh, reflections on the death of Alexander Navalny uh, I do not know any more than anyone else uh, who killed him and why, but URA.ru is reporting that the Speaker of the Duma, the Russian Parliament, Vyacheslav Volodin, is blaming Washington and Brussels for the death. He doesn't have chapter and verse with his accusation. You will see the asterisk there on the name Navalny in the top line of the headline. That's because Russia takes a very hard line uh, attitude to this, and anyone who's on the list of supposed terrorists has to ha have that uh, fact notified in headlines. So a bit uh, chilling. Just to flag up to people who want to look into this, Martin Armstrong, the long-term economist, 
has got a lot of detail on this. Uh, in fact, he was well involved in 1998 when a lot of the pieces fell into place in uh, in Russia uh, from his base in London. He's written the piece Alex Alexei Navalny behind the curtain, and. Uh, he concludes that Navalny was genuinely, as a Western means, mainstream media would have it, genuinely going after corruption. But it was the oligarchs and the survivors of what he calls Berezovsky's seven oligarchs uh, who had the interest in killing him. And that is actually uh, a point that goes through this piece. It raises more questions than it answers. For balance, Yuri uh, Roshka in uh, Moldova, whose interview with us will be out soon, who takes an anti-Putin stance, uh, equally familiar with the backgrounds and the players in Moscow, uh, has said this at the end of his piece, also will be in the show notes, the death of a political prisoner and its stakes. He says that the alternative press, and he's not having a big particular title, so much less am I, but he's saying that there are some who take a fanatical view admiring Putin uh, and who have taken this opportunity to say that Navalny almost deserved to die, whoever it was uh, who saw to it that he had his ridiculously well-timed demise, uh, who knows. Uh, but there is a, a man that's died here. And uh, Roshka is pointing out that there is sometimes a failure of gumption in our free media as well as our legacy media when it comes to such matters. There is one more from me as well, yes. Sorry about that. Um, uh, the BBC has descended to this level of bathos. Alexei Navalny dies in prison uh, and the BBC and news has put out Trump remains silent. They've got a wonderful graphic of Trump having made 90 posts on Truth Social Network and none of them about Alexei Navalny. Uh, I think it's safe to say nobody takes the BBC's line seriously outside Britain anymore when it comes to such events. OK, Alex, thank you very much for that. And uh, of course, uh, Navalny was the BBC answer to the fall of Avdivka. Mark, let's bring you in. Welcome to today's news. And uh, you've been uh, looking at the World Health Organization and its manoeuvring. Yeah, uh, since UK column is on their mailing list and their press list, we get all the notices that any other media would get. So here we have the eighth meeting of the Intergovernmental uh, Negotiating Body for a WHO instrument, that's the Treaty on Pandemic Prevention, Preparedness and Response. It starts today, 19th of February, and runs through March 1st, something very important for our viewers and readers to keep an eye on. This is very time sensitive. Of course, they're shooting for that May 24 so-called alleged completion date of this instrument or treaty. I think they think they're going to make it. I'm not so sure. We have to assume they will unless we uh, learn otherwise. Anyway, this, this next slide here, pandemic instrument treaty, INB meetings start today. This is the eighth meetings, the eighth round of the INB uh, to be held in hybrid format starting today through March 1st with the opening and closing sessions open, uh, being openly publicly uh, webcast. They'll, they'll uh, publicly webcast the opening and closing sessions. But uh, we'll soon learn that that's not very adequate and in fact is very inadequate. Further, a joint plenary session with the working group on the international health regs is scheduled to be um, held on the morning of the 23rd of February. So we have another session, another important date to keep in mind there. It's anticipated that the International Intergovernmental Negotiating Body meeting number eight will continue its consideration of the draft pandemic agreement, including with inputs from various member state-led processes. And the ninth meeting of the INB, another date to announce, will be held from the 18th till the 28th of March. So our readers and viewers take these notes down. 
You can review the show notes to get those dates straight, to contact your members of parliament, to contact your members of Congress, your local officials, uh, whatever it might be, approaching city councils, letting them know what's going on with the WHO and what how this could affect sovereignty in, in your nation. Anyway, what's interesting here, Brian, is the intergovernmental negotiating body working on the treaty has a bureau, and it's formed by six officers, one each from six, that is the official six WHO regions, including two co-chairs. And they work together to coordinate the work of the INB and facilitate the process, including for negotiations, and make proposals on the way forward as agreed by the WHO member states. And here we actually see a picture in this slide of this bureau of the INB. And there's the six people. Mr. Taguchi, representing Japan, has been replaced. As far as I can tell, everyone else is still the same. But these six members have penned an article in the medical journal called The Lancet. And we'll look at that next, Brian. Um, I won't go on too much about this except to hit the key points. Uh, It's important to quote them exactly in this particular context. This is from last September in The Lancet. And that Bureau of the IMB was, is, uh, is concerned about these sort of things. Although the process of drafting a pandemic accord has been transparently informed to global communities in 2022 and 2023, there's been a substantial amount of misinformation related to the contents of the WHO Treaty. This misinformation includes assertions that this pandemic treaty, and it's rare that they use the word treaty, and they did right there. Usually they say instrument or agreement. So now they're using the word treaty. That there's concern, there's misinformation. They say that the pandemic treaty threatens national sovereignty, that who would deploy troops to enforce the treaty, and that national armed forces would be deployed to implement the treaty under UN orders. There have been rumors of vaccine mandates and digital passports enabling WHO to track individuals' movements, concerns about the WHO's authority to sanction countries, and opposition to ceding authority to the WHO, among other concerns. Now, that deserves a quick quick bit of comment there, Brian. I personally have looked at this a lot. I have never read anywhere where someone has asserted that military force would be used to enforce this treaty. That, in my opinion, was put out there by trolls to discredit those that have much more precise and legitimate concerns about the WHO treaty and instrument, whatever you want to call it. So that's an interesting dynamic that they're talking about things that I don't think any of, any of us have ever seen. And uh, other than normal concerns about sovereignty and who authority and things like that. And those are legitimate concerns. Now, reading a little bit more from that Bureau of the IMB's uh, article in The Lancet, composed of those six members that we saw, except for one that changed in Japan, they they wrote this uh, in the same article in The Lancet. Sovereignty stands as the one key guiding principle in the proposed Bureau text. Sovereignty entails that who member states in accordance with the UN Charter and general principles of international law, hear that, possess the sovereign right to enact and implement legislation in alignment with their health policies by upholding the purposes and objectives of the WHO Treaty and carrying out the obligations under that treaty in a manner consistent with the principles of sovereign equality and territorial integrity of member states 
and that of non-intervention in the domestic affairs of other member states. The Bureau text includes provisions safeguarding national sovereignty, they say, which has been consistently emphasized by the INB during these negotiations. Now, that, Brian, deserves a quick comment. And before I uh, handle the last couple uh, slides, anything to do with the UN Charter, anything involving the UN at all, or a branch or component of the UN like the WHO, has a compromise to its sovereignty from the get-go. The UN system itself uh, brings nations together in such a way where their sovereignty is always in peril. All UN documents have this, these exception clauses, like the UN Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the UN Charter itself. You have the right to speak out, you have the right to this and the right to that, unless it conflicts with international law or unless it conflicts with the principles of some other UN document or, or um you know, um, statement of principle somewhere. So there's always a escape hatch for freedom. In, in other words, or, or escape hatch for tyranny, rather. The the UN documents will state that you have a right, and then in the next breath, they'll negate it. And that's how the whole system works. Now, this part that we're looking at, this is a document that has to do with the current upcoming meeting uh, of the INB, the, this next round I talked about, Proposal for negotiating text of the WHO pandemic agreement. And it says the objective of the WHO pandemic agreement, guided by equity, the right to health, and the principles and approaches of set forth therein, is to prevent, prepare for, and respond to pandemics with the aim of comprehensively and effectively addressing the systemic gaps and challenges that exist in these areas at the national, regional, and international levels. See right there which is so common in UN literature and UN uh, documents, it, it begins to erode at the very thing that it says, that first you have national sovereignty, but now the treaty will fill in the gaps created by uh, nations and, and, and you know the, the differences that nations create with their laws. And uh, lastly, as we wind this up, this is from James Roguski, the noted WHO researcher. We're hearing all these soothing promises that, the WHO as part of the UN will not compromise sovereignty with the treaty. But as Roguski is bringing out here, not only does he have a part at James jamesroguski.substack.com, that's his blog, not only does he have a part about saying stop the treaty, and he has provisions that you can see there, but he has um, a proposal for negotiating text of the WHO pandemic agreement. So uh, readers can look at these two things at jamesroguski.substack.com. But the top part of this slide here is the most important part, that except for the beginning and the end of the INB negotiation round that I talked about, which will be publicly webcast, but it might not be live, it might be archived for later. Other than that, these are secret negotiations, Brian. So all the soothing words about sovereignty and all that they're saying belies the fact that all UN instruments um, basically uh, are double meaning or double speak and that must, much of the IMB negotiations will be secret. So as you can see, uh, it's kind of like NATO won't, won't uh, perform military maneuvers on the border of Russia. Well, they won't do it until they do. The UN is the same way. We won't infringe upon your rights until we do. 
Mark, thank you very much for that. Yes, and uh, it seems that they're very worried that people are picking up on sovereignty and why we should be protecting sovereignty of the nation state. So I think this is a defence mechanism. Well, if you like what UK Column is doing, please support us. And uh, that means uh, taking a membership with us or donating to us or buying from the shop. Um, all of these things help us uh, stay broadcasting and talking to our members. And it's with your financial help that we're here. So if you're already signed up with us, that's wonderful. If you're not, perhaps you might consider joining us. And uh, what's coming up? Well, tomorrow at one o'clock, we've got an interview with David Siegel uh, entitled Heating Up the Climate Debate. Now, this is a scientific discussion. It's not political. It's talking about the actual science that does exist uh, around um, the climate, what is true and what's not. So do join us for this uh, very interesting interview. Um, we'd also like to... Um, Advertise here for Sunday, the 25th of February at 6 p.m., um, the Medazalam murders. And this is Jackie DeVoy bringing people on screen to talk about uh, what has happened to, to them around the uh, use of Medazalam um, in the so-called care system. So that will be particularly interesting. And uh, also just wanted to mention um, Mike silencing the academics, which of course went out last night. Big thank you to everybody who supported that. And uh, we'd just like to say that we had some lovely comments in. Thank you, UK Column, for the symposium. Very informative and interesting three hours. So clearly people enjoyed that. And I'd also like to say we've had a very good response to my Walking the Dog, episode one. I realized a few people were expecting video, but I wanted to do this audio to get people relaxed. And of course, you can be traveling in your car and listening to this. And so we've got many people keen on audio. Lots of nice comments. Thank you, Brian. Um, a person saying they used to subscribe to the old paper. I hope they're subscribing now. Um, but uh, many of the dog uh, walkers uh, gave a mention. And if we just go on through this one, um, somebody said, I wonder how you managed to do this. Well, walking the dog helps keep me sane. And uh, I was also intrigued that we had a couple of responses from Australia. So well done, the Aussies. And uh, if we just carry on through there, there was a few more lovely comments. One regarding uh, regards from Jamaica, one lady saying it enabled her to go for a walk with a dog. She's not physically capable of doing that, but she enjoyed coming with Poppy and myself. And somebody said dogs are not our whole life, but they make our lives whole. So overall, we had some lovely responses there. And uh, I'm very grateful for people to uh, come forward. Uh, now, back to you, Alex, and um, interesting things happening in France, which we need to get to the bottom of. There has been a so-called Pfizer article inserted in a draft bill. Now, on the continent, particularly in France, the right of initiative in uh, bringing laws forward to Parliament <clears throat> is uh, a hot potato. It's not reserved uniquely to Parliament, as it would be in a Westminster system. The government can impose it externally, so there's much more pushing and shoving. Many people in the English-speaking world became aware of the issue uh, thanks to this tweet by Dr. Kat Lindley, itself a retweet of a retweet, both of the original tweets being French. Uh, she speaks uh, about uh, the basis for um, qualifying any opposition to mRNA 
liquid nanoparticle jabs uh, as a sectarian aberration. The French term there is dérive sectaire, which we'll get into in a moment. The maximum uh, uh, penalty, uh, if you can um, be blamed for um, having said to somebody, don't take the mRNA jabs, I wouldn't take them, and allegedly they suffer as a result, is three years imprisonment and €45,000 fine, one third of each of those amounts for a, a less serious offence, allegedly. Um, this was uh, following on, uh, as I say, in a chain uh, via Annie Arnaud, uh, who's pointed out that uh, even the French Parliament, particularly the upper house, the Senate, called it uh, a liberty-killing or liberticidal measure, and had already thrown out this text uh, before the government reimposed it in the lower house, the Assemblée Nationale, uh, and Annie Arnaud said France is becoming totalitarian, social unrest is ahead. Notably, most of the opposition parties were not on board with this uh, government proposal, except the Socialist Party uh, of Mr. Mélenchon, which uh, sadly did go along with it. The original tweet in the chain was this by one, uh, the leader of a small party, uh, a so-called social Gaullist party, uh, Nicolas Dupont-Aignan, uh, who said here, with an automatic translation for readers as well, that Article 4, the offending article, had been thrown out already by the Conseil d'État, which sits between the chambers of parliament and tells the parliamentarians when they've been naughty. It had been thrown out by the Senate and uh, thrown out in the lower house, the Assemblée Nationale. So you here being referred to is the government who is still trying to ram this through, Macron and his henchmen. What's the fuss about? Well, this is uh, uh, done around this uh, text, particularly a screenshot. France criticism of mRNA will be punishable in the future. It's actually a machine translation of a piece by Thomas Eusmüller, who I see writing a lot of interesting material now in German. The original is here, and uh, he actually gets a bit more into the kernel of what's being uh, discussed. But we'll go further from that. This will be in the show notes for those who wish to use it using a machine translation. Uh, but look at the article itself. I won't read it all, obviously, but you can see the sum there in Article two, uh, Article 4, Clause 2. You can see the, the fine of €15,000 for the crime of provocation, which isn't the same as English provocation. It's, it's inducing anyone to uh, cease using or to refrain from um, a therapeutical or prophylactic medical treatment. So that seems to cover jabs all right. Um, if this um, the treatment has been uh, recommended by the medical state of the art as something, again, a difficult French phrase, manifestement susceptible, uh, many people have translated that as, uh, as obviously or evidently uh, likely to help them. In other words, if the military, sorry, if the medical cabal, perhaps a Freudian slip there, uh, says this is good for you, uh, then you have no uh, leg to stand on if any, if in your defence, uh, if you are then accused of having uh, told people, I would watch out, I'm not sure that that treatment is good for you. Uh, but the key phrase there is that people already have to be suffering. There's mention of them having a pathology already. So this is the thin get-out clause which people defending this article in the draft bill have used to defend it, saying, oh, no, you, you won't be criticised for telling people not to get a jab because, um, you know, if they're not ill, then you are not covered by it. I doubt this because, of course, whether you're ill or not, as we've seen in COVID, is a matter for the establishment to decide and not common sense or your infected status. Uh, but here's the killer. This bill uh, as a whole, this projet de loi or draft bill, is actually not a medical bill at all. 
it is to reinforce the struggle, very French Republican language, against dérive sectaire, which is basically cult aberrations. Uh, there will be some show notes which are not slide, uh, given a slide in this segment for people to read up on that. But basically for the last quarter century since the Chirac presidency, the French uh, decided that they were going to crack down hard on cults and sects. But then they decided to go for, beyond you know, nominally Protestant sects or, or uh, New Age cults. And they went right into um, alternative medicine as a result. Uh, the French parliamentary channel, LCP, is giving more detail. Again, follow this in the show notes and you can uh, have a look at that using a, a machine translation. Uh, but it's reporting here that the parliament, Assemblée, has adapted, adopted the, uh, uh, the law, uh, creating the crime of uh, inducing somebody to abstain from health care. Let's put that on screen now. And so that's um, the, the, the headline there. Uh, the key point there is that the rapporteur, so the woman in Parliament who is championing the government's bill from outside Parliament, said, OK, now that both houses of Parliament in France have turned against it, uh, I want to review the text of this article. And surprise, surprise, she then decides that there are, uh, there's a necessity for protecting whistleblowers and that there'll have to be protections too if uh, the alleged victim of this crime can be proven to have consented clearly and freely uh, to refraining from or, with, uh, or discontinuing the treatment involved. Uh, so really hapless stuff from the French uh, medical establishment and lobby. Uh, but it's not the only country where such things are going on. Just in quick, quickly at the end of this segment, the Canadian House of Commons has a private members bill, perhaps deceptively uh, strong as a bill because it's not just by any old backbench MP, but it's by Charlie Angus of the NDP, which props up the government in Canada with 25 seats supporting the Trudeau administration. Bill C-372 on fossil fuel advertising has this stinker in the middle of it, particularly Article 9 down the bottom of the screenshot here. It's prohibited for a producer or retailer to provide or offer any consideration, so that could be a mug, for example, for the purchase of a fossil fuel. So you could be fined 50,000 Canadian dollars, according to the, the bare text of this draft, uh, as a petrol station or gas station, as they would say there, if you simply say, uh, fill up your tank here and we'll give you a freebie. It's also forbidden to claim that emissions of some fossil fuels, as it's framed in this law, would be less harmful than others. Uh, totalitarianism, and particularly reaching the level now of legislating for how people are to speak and think. Uh, incredible times, absolutely incredible times there, Alex, and people need to keep track of this stuff very carefully and, of course, shout out about it. Well, um, where does that take us? It takes us to happy Grant Shapps. Let's uh, have a listen to uh, Mr. Shapps in action. The UK's network of allies and partners across the globe makes us ever safer. And that's why over the last few days, I've been meeting with dozens of them to bolster support for Ukraine, strengthen NATO and tackle growing threats. As the world becomes ever more dangerous, my message to all of them has been clear. Britain will not shy away from our duty, which is to stand up and defend our nation, our values and our friends. Well, there we are. He's pretty happy that, of course, UK is helping to stoke up and sustain a war wherever it is in Ukraine or in the uh, Middle East. We haven't got the armed forces to participate properly, but he's happy those wars are going. But when he says our, I'm still confused as to whether he's talking about the UK or Israel, because he's consistently said that he's going to be working with both UK and Israel 
and we simply don't know who's driving his policy. Uh, but what's the reality behind the scenes? Well, if NATO is failing, UK's military forces are failing. No disrespect to those serving. We are saying to you, you're being betrayed by your masters. Um, now, a few days ago, we reported this House of Commons Defence Committee entitled Ready for War. This was um, printed on the 30th of January 2024. But the conclusion of this document was that one, the government was being defensive and hiding information around the state of our armed forces, but also that UK's armed forces were absolutely not ready for war. Now, in going on through the document, I've been fascinated by the type of people now involved in creating our defence policy. So under this um, section, readiness for what, they were looking at uh, readiness in an operational sense, a war fighting sense, and a strategic sense. My brain says you're either ready to fight a war or you're not. Uh, but some interesting people involved here, we just bring a couple of them on screen. So we've got Dr. Simon Anglim. He's essentially a war and conflict historian. And this other gentleman in the second paragraph, Professor Justin Bronk, and, um, well, what is he? Well, he's got his private pilot's license. But if we move on to the next uh, screen, <clears throat> we can see that uh, he's got a PhD where he's been looking at balancing imagination and design in British combat aircraft development to the Defence Studies Department of King's College. But we'll just highlight a key interesting paragraph. He holds a Professor two position at the Norwegian Royal Norwegian Air Force Academy, and he's involved with the Central Scientific Research Institute of Arms and Military in Ukraine. The only place I could find information on that particular organization was on Wikipedia. So thank you, Wiki. If we just expand the text here, we can see that the goals of this organization are to establish military technical policy in the fields of development a modernization of weapons and military equipment. And remember that this is a Ukrainian uh, program. So now I'm confused as if the, the team helping tell us that our military are not fit for purpose and can't do the job. Are they actually working for Ukraine or the UK? All of a sudden, our sovereignty seems to have been dissolved in a number of different ways. But uh, if we come back on to Grant Shapps, it was only a few days ago that there was furor, sorry, that uh, basically uh, he was criticizing wokeism inside the military. But of course, the government has driven wokeism into the military. So this is a very disingenuous criticism. Um, one headline that came out of his comments about uh, removing uh, woke was uh, this particular, if we can just move on to the next uh, slide. Uh, women in the armed forces now apparently feel unsafe after the Grant Shapps comments. So if they feel unsafe in the armed forces, do our enemies feel unsafe because the women are there? I don't know. If we go on through to the independent, uh, remarkable piece here by this particular gentleman, Mike Crofts. Um, but he said that Grant Shapps' attack on woke po uh, policies is just a cynical political stunt. But we know the woke 
agenda is destroying the military. If we look in a bit more detail at what this gentleman said, he said to Grant Shapps, get a grip. A war on woke is no way to run a modern military. But it seems to me and has done over many years that the wokeism is destroying the military. And then he says, uh, Mike Croft says, if the defense secretary wants young people to join the Army, Navy, Air Force and recruitment targets have been missed every year since the Tories came to power, they need to know they'll be respected regardless of their ethnicity, gender or sexuality. So um, this gentleman has served in the military, but I find his uh, comments just extraordinary because effectively this stuff is helping to undermine the military. And if we look at senior uh, military officers, they're fully in bed with this. So we just have a look at this headline, diversity and inclusion. And uh, we've got a comment here by the chief of the general staff. He says that an army that is justifiably recognized as demonstrably inclusive employer that respects difference, attracts talents from all areas of society, overtly embraces equality of opportunity and always challenges unacceptable behavior. It's a very strange sentence, but really I think he's trying to say if we do this, we will be better. He's backed up by Lieutenant General Tickle, who says to continue to be recognized one of the leading armies in the world, we must be able to recruit and retain a diversity of talent and thought drawing and thought drawing from all sections of society. But of course, the reality is that the army is not a, is no longer a leading army in the world because the woke agenda has undermined it. Let's have a look at this little video clip from the army talking about who they're actually using to monitor how wonderfully woke they are. Hello, and welcome to the British Army podcast. The army is working hard to ensure it is inclusive and embraces diversity. Part of that effort is the introduction of its Army Teamwork Initiative. And today, I'm joined by five guests, all with their own unique experiences and all with their own views on how successful the Army's efforts are. We want to ensure our service personnel feel and believe they are treated fairly and that their work practices and environments correctly support their individual needs to enable them to do their job effectively and to be the best they can be. So let's start by letting everyone introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Corporal Shannon Rogers. I'm an armourer with the Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers. I joined the Army in 2013, aged 16, through AFC Harrogate, and I'm currently based in Turnhill with 1st Battalion, the Royal Irish Regiment. I speak on the Army's Diversity Allies course, and I'm also one of the Army Sergeant Major Diverse Mentors. I enjoy studying, and I'm coming to the close of a degree in psychology. I'm also a Samaritans volunteer. More importantly than any of that, though, I am a mum to a little girl. Hi, I'm Jess. I've served in the army for nine years. I'm currently based near London. I grew up in Somerset, uh, a lovely little town. Had some good schooling, went to university. It was at that point I decided I didn't want to do your traditional thing and go into a full-time job in some respects. I joined the army very randomly and abruptly and ever since it's been the best decision I've ever made. I'm involved with the army LGBT network that I'm very passionate about. Like Shannon, I'm also the army sergeant major's reverse mentor and I do a lot at my unit to do with diversity and inclusion, so a, a massive passion of mine. Hello, I'm Anthony Cotton. I'm uh, an actor, probably most known for playing Sean in Coronation Street, a job that I've been doing for the past I can't even believe I'm about to say this, but 19 years, man and boy, and I'm still only 21. I'm also the first ambassador of SAFA, 
And so there's the reality. Uh, Coronation Street is helping the army function. Why should we be worried about uh, performance on the battlefield? And if I just uh, finish this uh, section with a harsh reality, I'm just taking the Royal Navy here. But essentially, this is a list of specialized positions in warfare, engineering, mine warfare, tactical weapons systems, and even nuclear watch keepers. And if you uh, watch the uh, red arrow advance down the screen, you will see that basically massive shortages, 20%, 25 30%, 40%, 45% short of these key positions. And this is why, of course, the Royal Navy is having huge problems trying to function and trying to keep its ships at sea because there is not the staff. So diversity is not bringing uh, people into the armed forces. It's actually helping to undermine it. And uh, if we have a look at this dreadful report from the Telegraph, it's saying that the Navy could make climate change courses compulsory. So never mind that we haven't got the warfare staff, uh, we're going to think about climate change. And of course, the reality is that the Navy itself doesn't make good or bad decisions. Uh, this is crass and deliberately destructive policy, uh, but it's been created by people. We need to know who they are and we need to get them as far away from our armed forces as possible. Uh, let's end there. Let's bring Mark Anderson on screen. And uh, I think the banner was anticipating you, Mark. And I think you're on to the uh, subject of uh, the polls. Uh, yes, uh, I'll be as concise as possible with this. And uh, this is a amazingly pivotal case coming up uh, from Garland Favrito of Voters Organized for Trusted Election Results in Georgia or, or Voter GA. This really accentuates how the state of Georgia is sort of the Rosetta Stone or the pivotal state of all the states to show that election theft and election problems are very endemic, very, very deep-seated in the United States. Let there be no doubt about that. This is just a little something I wrote. Seismic election integrity case in Georgia is coming to a head. Boy, is that an understatement. Potentially ultra groundbreaking curling versus Raffensperger case, which most recently was argued in court about two weeks ago. Georgia State Judge Amy Totenberg is now poised to rule whether the state of Georgia's statewide Dominion computerized vote counting system is constitutionally deficient. Those two words mean more than meets the eye. Thus far, that judge has already declared that this Dominion system adopted by the Georgia Secretary of State's office statewide for the disputed 2020 election, uh, presidential election, she already ruled it's in violation of two state statutes. All that remains to be seen, guys, is whether she'll also declare the Dominion system constitutionally deficient, not only in violation of those statutes. This is profoundly significant, I wrote for this dispatch, when this same judge back in 2002, uh, some 22 years ago, ruled on the Diebold computerized voting system. She declared that system constitutionally deficient, and that system had to be scrapped under her order. They had to scrap the entire thing. So according to Georgia's uh, co-founder of Voter GA, Garland Favrito, who spoke to me last night, Probably by the end of March, we'll know whether yet another system in Georgia, this time the Dominion one, will be ruled unfit for use, declared constitutionally deficient, and literally scrapped and discontinued. 
Uh, let's move on from there. I'll just do the short version. Uh, securing our 2024 elections. It talks about Georgia's Dominion Democracy Suite 5.5 BNB system. Uh, it was discontinued in Tennessee. It was replaced in Colorado. It was rejected in Texas. All of that before Georgia purchased it for the 2020 disputed presidential election. The trial record also shows, shows Georgia's approach to auditing is totally inadequate. The defendant's constant fight against election transparency and secretive permanent storage of election ballots, something they're definitely guilty of, also severely harms constitutional voting rights. Moving on from there, uh, people can read more details in the uh, show notes, but Garland Favrito is talking about how the existence of the Dominion system is a tremendous burden on taxpayers and it's compromising their constitutional rights. So relief in this case requires a clear ruling. We'll soon find out what that's going to be, like I said, by the end of March. Moving on from there, uh, the Georgia government, and get this, uh, it, according to Voter GA, taking everything into account, all the months and years they've been watching what Georgia's been doing as the state where there's the most evidence of serious election problems with vote counting, the Georgia government has failed, voter GA is alleging. The Georgia legislature, the judicial system, and, and executive branch refuse to protect constitutional rights, so Georgians therefore have no other remedy. The legislature mandated these uh, Dominion machines with HB 316 over the security objections from nationally recognized experts. The Secretary of State's office has proven to be wholly inept, if not worse, at resolving these problems. And Georgia's, Georgia's courts, although Amy Totenberg is maybe an exception, have already ignored this court's previous findings that the Dominion BMD voting system violates two Georgia laws. And we'll summarize from there. Uh, this is Garland Favrito uh, kind of giving a summation of this. This is our best shot right now. That is the Curling versus Raffensperger lawsuit. I think Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger has played his last card. He didn't even show up to testify. And, um, and Garland also said constitutionally deficient means the use of the uh, Dominion vote counting system severely burdens your right to vote, including the vote count. And so, gentlemen, this is the most pivotal case that... Uh, you can imagine in terms of proving that there are serious vote counting issues and have been for a very long time. They came to a head in 2020 for the national presidential election. And this last slide is just a reminder that fairly recently I did a UK column interview with Garland Fabrito of Voter GA. And it's just a reminder, uh, check it out at the UK column website. He explains in excruciating detail why the problems in Georgia not only can be very, very validly proven, but are a portal or a window to what may be happening in most states of the union. So this, this case coming to a head, Curling versus Raffensperger, Brian, possibly, potentially could blow this whole thing wide open. 
Mark, thank you very much for that. I'd just like to add, and of course, this could never have happened without a great many people chipping away at uh, the whole problem, trying to expose it, researching, digging into it. And when people say, yes, but what can we do? It's many people doing whatever they can to actually attack this monster that's attacking us. So I, I regard this as uh, success, and thank you very much for taking us through it. Alex, you're going to close with a little look through things happening in Europe. Opening tour of the state of farmers' protests. Uh, Sputnik is the only outlet I've seen that has produced a graphic. I don't know why any uh, native European um, or EU-based news outlets haven't done that. Uh, but as you can see, the unrest now spreads all the way from Portugal to the Baltic and from Brittany to the Balkans. It's almost a contiguous uh, mass of EU member states all the way across the continent now uh, that see farmers' protests over high production costs, low income, unjust taxation. A lot of that is diesel related in Northern Europe. Cheap import products, you see Spanish farmers tipping out imports, and uh, EU agricultural policies, the Green Deal. On the last of those, Ursula von der Leyen, on behalf of the Commission, seems to have given way recently, as I reported from Brussels. Now, uh, a couple of viewers have sent us in uh, attestations of what's going on. So in east-central France, uh, Umberville, uh, a village in Ottoman, uh, had put its sign upside down. I understand very large numbers of uh, uh, French towns have done this to their village signs, just as the Dutch farmers recently flew their tricolours upside down. Over in Switzerland, not a member of the EU, but facing the same problem, here in the canton of Argal on Sunday, uh, this was snapped, no farmers, no food, no future. You see a lot of the same slogan in Dutch, obviously, along Dutch motorways as well. It really is spreading. Uh, what else is going on? This is just a silent clip of uh, farmers in what's often regarded as the best of La France Profonde, uh, the uh, department of Tarn et Garonne, uh, scaling the mairie, the town hall, to uh, remove and deal with the European Union flag, uh, leaving the French national tricolor in pride of place there, an attestation of how they feel. Down in Greece, uh, farmers in perhaps the most important farming area in Larissa in central Greece reported last week, as carried here by Associated Press, that they were going to do what's been done to a number of capitals, Brussels, Paris, and I hear New York's next. There'll be a show note about that. Um, they're going to blockade the capital. So apparently the convoy will be off tomorrow down the um, Isthmus to Athens. We'll see what uh, the police response will be down there. Uh, just in closing on the state of Europe, Politico covers that the European Central Bank, only one stage down from the BIS, uh, had one of its six uh, board members, Frank Elderson of the Netherlands, in an internal meeting say, I do not want anyone who doesn't believe in green ideology. Christine Lagarde, who runs the outfit, says that she stands by him and her diversity policy. The quotation is given. Why would we want to hire people, he said, who we have to reprogram? They came from the best universities, but they still don't know how to spell the word climate. And he then, when challenged, said he was not threatening anyone's jobs and did not expand on what he meant by being able to spell climate. Uh, the 93-year-old former prime minister of the Netherlands, Dries van Acht, has uh, departed this world in a double medically assisted suicide together with his wife, also aged 93. Tragic, obviously, for them, but also setting a precedent of acceptance. It's been picked up even by the New York Post here that they died hand in hand, almost an advert for medical assisted suicide, medically assisted. And over in Germany, um, the uh, title Euraktiv 
rather approvingly uh, quotes this measure, which is going ahead now, uh, courtesy of the German Justice Ministry. What's going on here? Well, there is a new uh, officially registered kind of relationship in Germany uh, for Antwortungsgemeinschaft. They don't do short words in Germany, particularly not for the law. Uh, for Antwortungsgemeinschaft means a community of shared responsibility or a companionship of shared responsibility. Up to six people in a merry polygamous affair, whether Islamic, uh, pagan or anything else you care to mention, can now register themselves. And obviously it's being presented softly as a good way for um chaste uh, old people who like each other's company to inherit and and, uh, and save money with each other. Uh, but it is actually perfectly open for uh, up to six so-called polyamorous partners. Uh, I'm silent. <laughs> I'm silent there, Alex. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Just uh, end us on uh, your couple of images. Meryl Nass has covered in her blog this rather striking cartoon, Exit the World Health Organization, and the serpent of Asclepius has turned out to be a boa conscriptor that's uh, causing everyone to run away from its headquarters in Geneva. And this, building on news that Sadiq Khan's Woke London is renaming our six overground railway lines to reflect London's diversity, uh, the comedian Jay Mack has decided to uh, tweet out a picture of Thomas the Tank Engine being bricked into his sidings in a tunnel. And uh, the caption there is, that'll teach you, Gordon, said the stunning and brave controller. You don't run the Bakerloo line anymore. It's the George, the George Floyd bottom surgery Hamas line now. <laughs> Okay, uh, thank you very much. We've run over a little bit, but uh, my goodness, how do we report what's happening around us? Many people saying to uh, uh, to all of us here at the UK column, what's happening? And my simple explanation is that we in the UK, but also, of course, other people in the world, sovereign states are being attacked uh, by a global organization. It's as simple as that. But we must leave it there. Keep fighting, keep speaking out, keep sharing the information. Uh, we must end the news. So thank you very much for joining us. Uh, if you're part of the UK Column team, we will have extra in a few moments. Thank you for joining us. Bye-bye.